Hands up if you... Okay, good. Bible's around. Acts chapter uh, 10, John chapter 20. Let's pray, and we'll get into John chapter 20. Heavenly Father, uh, here we are again, Lord. Sitting at your feet, waiting to hear from you. Not just to learn knowledge, but to have changed lives. We know that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Lord, I pray that, that among us, you would help us to abound more and more and more in love toward one another. In a time and a place when the love of many has grown and is growing cold. That in the body of Christ, that there would be heaps of forgiveness and grace and love extended realistically from one to another, Lord. Not just loving in word and in, and, and in what we say, Lord, but also in what we do and how we treat each other. Lord, fill us fresh with your spirit. Open our eyes to see wondrous things from your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said, amen. John chapter 20, we'll go to the end of, of the chapter today, uh, and then we'll I think I mentioned that the, the plan is to finish up the Gospel of John in the next couple of weeks. Then we'll do a few, uh, pick up a few epistles, short letters through the end of the year. And then in the beginning of the year, we'll start a study in the book of Genesis and lay a fresh a foundation for all of us. John 20, we left off. This is uh, dealing with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And most of you, uh, many of you have been around of the church for some time, and you know as well as I know that if the resurrection did not really happen, we are wasting our time. And I don't like to waste my time. And I know I don't like to waste your time. Because if we believe in a lie, and Jesus said he was going to rise from the dead, and he never really did, then he really was just simply a liar or a lunatic. But we believe, and we have good evidence, that actually... Jesus Christ did rise from the dead. And that's the only thing that can explain the fact that here we are today, 2,000 years later, you had disciples that were hiding in a room for fear, never expecting to see physically and bodily. Remember, he rose, Jesus rose not just in spirit, but physically and bodily. He was gone from the grave. Gone. This is Jesus Christ. When we say Jesus Christ is alive, I mean, he's really alive. And if that's not true, then all of us still have issues to deal with regarding our sins in our life. But if it is true, if Jesus really did rise from the dead, as we spoke about last week, that is a game changer. That is a life changer. So the disciples are, are gathered together in this room. Uh, verse 19 uh, is sort of where we, we left off. The same day at evening being the first day of the week when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said that, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. It really was him. It wasn't uh, a, a ghost. It, that he could show them the actual, the, the proof that it was really him was, I'm the guy that was on the cross. It's me. There's the, the proof in my hands and, and my feet and my side. And so Jesus said to them again, verse 21, Peace to you, as the Father has sent me, 
I also send you. And he says peace to you. Peace over and over again. We see him. He makes many appearances to the disciples in his resurrected body. And he keeps telling them peace to you. Now this is significant, I think, to me. Not just because he says peace to them. Because remember, they had all abandoned him. Peter had denied him. They all had abandoned him at the cross. The only one that was there was John among uh, some of the women that were there as well. But the only disciple or the only apostle was John. The rest had abandoned him. They took off. They fled. And so now they're hiding in this room and Jesus shows up. And Jesus could have easily said to them, all right, it's payday, you know. Where were you guys when I needed you? And no way would he have actually work for them to do now. It'd be like, you know, if that was me, like, you know, look, I gave you guys a chance. And you blew it. You proved yourself to be weak and frail. And now I'm just going to find 12 new guys. And I'm going to start over with them. Is that what he said? See, now, this is not just a good story. This is meaningful to me and to many of you who in your lives have, have abandoned Christ. Maybe you're back here today for the first time in a long time. Many years. And you think, well, there's no way God could use me. You know, there's no way I could. And here are the disciples. He says to them, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. Really, God, us? You're still going to use us? I mean, don't you remember? Yeah, I know. I know what you did. And I still want to use you. I'm going to, just like God sent me to, to bear witness to the truth, to seek and save that which was lost, and you can go all the things that, through all the things that Jesus came to do, in that same way that I came, now I'm sending you. You are going to continue the work that I started. Now the question is, how are they going to do that? And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. And that's the, that's the answer to the question of how in the world are they going to do this? How do they move from failing to being evangelists and preaching and, and spreading the, the message and sharing their testimonies? He breathes on them. And, and where, would that take, where does that take your mind back to? It takes your mind back to Genesis, right? When God formed Adam from the dust of the earth. And he breathed into his nostrils and he became a living being. And I, I talk about that a lot. I, that to me, I come from a scientific background. A bio, I was a biology major. And to me, that, that little passage in Genesis is so important because, and I've shared this for some of you, this is not new information. I love the law of biogenesis, just like you do. I mean, we all love the law of biogenesis, right? I mean, I'm not alone in that. What's the law of biogenesis? Our pastor's a kook. Um, it says that life only comes from life. It's a law. And I was just on the downtown mall. I got to, a chance to go to the downtown mall this past uh, Friday, just two days ago, and uh, some of the, with some of the crew that goes there regularly. And I got to strike up a conversation with this group of young guys. And, you know, it was about 10 of them. Uh, and I, talk, I walked up to them and said, okay, I'm looking for someone who's intelligent. You guys know anybody who's intelligent around here? <laughs> All right, we're, what do you mean we're intelligent, you know? <laughs> so, of course, by the end of the conversation, only two of them were left that were actually really engaged in the conversation. And what I talked to them about, are you sure what you learned in biology class was true about where life comes from? And so we talked about some of these things and had a great conversation with these two guys. But scientifically speaking, life has to come from life. And so I see that God is that life giver. And that makes sense to me. 
what doesn't make sense to me is that life came from nothing or non-life. That doesn't make sense to me. That's not reasonable. But that, that God is life and then he can give that life to others. I told the one young guy, I said, look, I don't know your parents. I don't know where your parents are. I don't know if you even have a good relationship with your parents. You may, you may have been uh, adopted. You don't even know where your parents are. But I know you have parents. Why? Because you exist. And your existence is the proof that you had parents. Because somebody had to give you life. And it's the same thing for us. Somebody, we had to get life from somewhere. Now, that's physical life. But that is also, listen carefully, that is also spiritual life. He breathes on them. Just, again, just as God breathed into the nostrils of Adam, he breathes on them and he says, receive the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the life of God. Receive that. So you can't get spiritual life from your parents. You weren't born a Christian. You, weren't, you can't inherit that from your parents. You can't inherit it genetically. You have to have it given to you by the one who gives spiritual life, that is Jesus Christ himself. Outside of him, there is no spiritual life. Now, a lot of people uh, struggle with this passage um, because he breathes on them, says, receive the Holy Spirit. That's a command. When he says receive, that's an, it's, it, in the Greek, it's an imperative, it's a command. It's like, you are going to receive, you are receiving the Holy Spirit. Receive it. Or him. Now the question is, well, what happened then in the book of Acts? If they received the Spirit there, then we have the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit being poured out on the day of Pentecost. What's the connection? And some would say this is just symbolic of what's going to happen in the future at Pentecost. Uh, others say that when, if Jesus says to you, receive the Holy Spirit, I think you receive the Holy Spirit. This is my personal opinion. Uh, so... Jesus had told them, look, the Spirit of God is with you and will be in you. And I think that's what happened here. When Jesus breathed on them, said, receive the Holy Spirit. I believe that they received the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came to dwell in them. And then at Pentecost, I believe something different happened, that the Holy Spirit came upon them for power. This is for new life. This is for spiritual life. The other, uh, the Spirit coming upon a person is for power. Uh, that's Acts chapter 2. You can read about that. Anyway, you can, you can think this through, argue that out. Um, I'll just give you my opinion on it. Other people have different opinions, just so you know. But he says to them, receive the Holy Spirit. And at some point, that has to happen in your life. It's not about showing up to church, reading your Bible, all those things. There's a lot of people that aren't saved that read the Bible as an academic practice. They can quote, people can quote to you Scripture. That doesn't mean they have life. And so at some point, this is what it's about. It's about receiving the Holy Spirit into your life, receiving the life of God. And that's where everything starts. That's where everything changes. It's it's an internal thing that happens. Receive the Holy Spirit. And then this interesting verse, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now, it sounds like, on first read, that they are now giving the power to determine whose sins are forgiven and whose sins are not. Isn't that what it sounds like? 
that Jesus' instruction is, I want you to build little booths and sit in them and have people come and confess their sins and you can decide if they are forgiven or not. And how much that might cost them. Well, how much you got? We'll see if we can forgive your sins. But that doesn't square with the rest of God's word. As a matter of fact, uh, Warren Wearsby is a well-known Bible commentator. Regarding this verse, he wrote a letter to a Greek scholar named Julius Manti who said actually the best way that this would be translated would be like this. Whosoever sins you forgive shall have already been forgiven them. And whosoever sins you do not forgive shall have already been not forgiven them. That makes things really clear, doesn't it? Let me have you turn to Acts chapter 10. Because the question is, how did they understand what was told them? How did they understand this commissioning, so to speak, about the forgiveness of sins? Acts chapter 10, Peter is talking to uh, uh, these people at the house of Cornelius, a a non-Jew, a Gentile. They're about to uh, have the Spirit of God poured out on them. And look at chapter 10. Let's look at verse 42. Actually, I'm sorry. Let's go back to verse uh, 40. All right, sorry. One more time. Verse 39. Let's go back there. Do I hear 38? Anybody? 37. (laughs) Acts chapter (laughs) 1. We don't have that kind of time. Acts chapter 10, verse 39. This is Peter speaking. He says, And we are witnesses of all things which he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. Him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly, not to all people. That's the part we're looking at right now in the Gospel of John, who Jesus made these appearances to. Not to all people, but to witnesses chosen before by God. Mary Magdalene. Peter, the, the, the 12 or the 11 apostles together, uh, even to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remissions, remission of sins. So did Peter have the idea that somehow he had the authority through him to forgive people's sins or not? Clearly, they were commanded and given this authority to tell people that forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ is available. And if you reject it, if if you accept God's offer, your sins are forgiven. And I can sit here today in 2014 and tell you without a shadow of a doubt that if you receive Jesus Christ... Your sins are washed away. And I can also tell you without a shadow of a doubt that if you reject Jesus Christ, your sins are not washed away. You are still in them. Now, what's interesting to me is I watched a a video recently. You can go back with me to to the Gospel of John. I watched a video recently uh, made by a guy who's an emergency medical technician, an EMT on Long Island. And he's with people in their dying moments. They have uh, tragic car accidents or other, other types of things, heart attacks and whatnot. And as they are, uh, as they are dying, he, he was wrestling with how to speak with them in, in, as they have only minutes left to live. And he, he said, I would oftentimes, I would um, lie to people to try to comfort them, 
tell them, it's going to be okay, you're going to be okay. And then one day he was, uh, minister, he was um, helping a guy who was having a massive heart attack. And he knew that, that there's nothing they could do to help him. And as the, the man looked him square in the eye and said, am I going to die? And he said, that moment I chose not to comfort him with, with my lies, but to tell him the truth. And he, said, and he said to him, yes, you're going to die. And he spoke about how amazed he was uh, that, that he didn't freak out or go crazy, that he was very uh, accepting of, of what was happening. And he said, but he notices three things uh, consistently now as he's been in these situations. He said, I noticed three things that are universally seen by him in these situations. Number one is oftentimes the first thing people want to know in those last moments is that they're forgiven. The number one thing they want to know is, I want to be forgiven. The second thing they want to know is they, they, they're uh, in touch with their immortality. They want to know that they'll be remembered. And the third thing is that they want to know that their life had meaning. And I believe as I listen to those three things, I think all of those are things accounted for in the gospel. All of those things are put into our hearts, I think, by God. The need, well, we know our own sinfulness. We know the need for forgiveness. But see, a lot of times, like you're sitting right here, And you can hold on to that idea that you're a good person up until that moment when you're there. And so much other stuff doesn't matter. And at that point, all that matters is what do I, not, hey, make sure you're, well, they they do want to remember the good things. That's where the meaning part comes in. But I know I've done some wrong things in my life. I know I've hurt people. And I need to know that I have forgiveness. And you can know. That's the thing. You don't have to wait You don't have to wonder. You can know. There's so many people around the world, they have no idea. Because they have no guarantee. And Jesus Christ, either he is who he is or he's not. And either he did what he said he did or he didn't. And he took all of your sins on the cross. He said, it is finished. The price has been paid. Your debt has been cleared. You are forgiven. And you can know that. And immortality, we, we know about eternal life. And meaning, you know, what do you think is meaningful? I, we've been going to Bloop on Fridays after the soup kitchen. And stri- I, ho- I don't know if she's here or not, but we've been striking up a conversation with the girl who's working, works there. And uh, a lot of times, just to make conversation, I'll say, I'll tell you what, next time we come back, let's talk about the meaning of life. Just a little conversation. You know, lightweight, uh, superficial conversation. Th- what do you think life's all about? So anyway, I'm off the track, but these were the things that he, that he mentioned. And so when you're witnessing to people, when you're talking to people, we have the best news in the world. Now, you'll tell people, you watch a movie or you watch a TV program that you love, you'll tell people about it. Oh, I just watched this movie. You've got to see this movie. It's a great movie. Or you've got to listen to this song. I just found this great song. Oh, you've got to listen to this song. But then when it comes to Jesus, we're like, I don't want to really tell people about that. You know, I'm kind of, once you get over the fear, I'm telling you, go on a Friday night to the downtown mall. Just go and watch. Just go and, and watch how some of these young folks do it. Watch how Warren shares his faith. And, and once you start talking to people, it's a lot of fun. I know Denise and Cindy were down there Friday. It's a lot of fun. And, you know, yeah, you get, you get, you know, some odd looks and you get some weird comments, but you'll meet some people that you can tell the Lord is working in their hearts. You know that they know 
that what you're saying is meaningful to them. And those two guys, I don't know what kind of seeds I planted. And I don't know what the Lord was doing in their hearts, but they were locked on. Now, they didn't become Christians that night. They didn't pray to receive the Lord. But seeds were planted, and that's what we do. One person plants a seed, then a month later or a week later or the next day, someone else comes along and they water it. And God brings the increase. If you forgive, one more thing I want to say about this. I think there's a practical side to this too. If you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven. People need to experience forgiveness of sins. It shouldn't be from Christians just theoretical or theological. When you forgive somebody practically, they experience the forgiveness of God. And they experience it through you practically forgiving them. Because they hear a lot about forgiveness, right? I mean, we hear about this God who forgives, but then we meet a whole bunch of Christians who don't. When you forgive someone's sins, they realize, wow, they forgave me. And there is no, there is no, it's such a frustrating place. And some of you may be in that place this morning where you know you need to be forgiven and that person will not forgive you. That is so hurtful, isn't it? When you know you've done wrong, you know you need forgiveness and they just won't forgive you. There's nothing you can do. Imagine if God was like that. Ah, I know I've messed up. I know. Nope, sorry, too late. That's not our God. Our God said, I'm going to make a way to forgive you. And he did through Jesus Christ. So, verse 24, we meet Thomas. Uh, Many of you know him from past sermons and uh, church experience. Thomas, verse 24, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. Now, we don't know where Thomas was. You know, remember, Thomas, we, we call him Doubting Thomas. There's some things I really like about Thomas. Thomas was the one, he was kind of the, the pessimist, you know, when Jesus was going to go uh, with the disciples to, uh, to Bethany, to the house of Lazarus, because Lazarus was sick. Uh, they were like, Jesus, if you go there, you know, you're going to die when you go there. They're hunting you down. And Thomas said, oh, let's, let's go so we can die with him there. You know, so he's on one hand courageous, but on the other hand pessimistic. You know, well, let's just go. We'll die with him there. I would, I, I'd love to meet Thomas. Well, where was he? We know the other disciples had gathered together, but Thomas missed the meeting. Could have been that he wanted to grieve alone. Could have been. It's like one of those people that went, they're all, he's all in, and then he was disappointed. He got let down, and he just, you know, uh, just needed to be alone. I, I don't know why, but I know that's a tough place to be. And he missed it when Jesus showed up because he decided to isolate himself. He, he missed it. Now, we don't read about Jesus breathing on him. Now, it doesn't mean it didn't happen. We just don't read about it. But he missed this time. You know, Jesus shows up in the gathering of his people. Now, he shows up other times too. Don't get me wrong. But so many times, we tend to isolate ourselves. And, and life gets busy and things happen and we don't have time. And you miss I, can you imagine how encouraged the disciples were when Jesus breathed on them, said, receive the Holy Spirit? I mean, this is a very, they were glad to see him. It was a very encouraging time. And so many people go through the, their weeks and their months and they skip out on the, on the meeting together and they wonder why they're so discouraged or so depressed. And Thomas, he missed the meeting. And the, the other disciples therefore said and kept saying, in the Greek they kept saying to him, we've seen the Lord. We have seen the Lord. 
So they're just, Thomas, I'm telling you, Thomas, we've seen him. Thomas is like, well, we know what Thomas said. So he said to them, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now, that's the strongest negative in the Greek language. It's I cannot believe. I will not believe, really, unless I I got to have a physical, I got to experience it for myself. And I appreciate that about Thomas. Thomas is not one who's just going to lay it down and just go with the flow, go with the crowd. Just because the crowd believes, I, I appreciate that about Thomas. And when a guy like Thomas comes to know the Lord, when, and maybe there's some skeptics in here. I told you last week, if you know a skeptic, bring him. Thomas is the quintessential skeptic. He is the, he is the guy. Because he said, no, I'm not just going to pretend I believe. I'm not going to play the game like I believe. Unless I, ha- unless I have this evidence, I'm not going to believe. And God is so gracious with that, right? He's so gracious about that. Unless I, unless I experience it. And after eight days, so Thomas, eight days, they're telling him, no, Thomas, we're telling you, we really have seen him. He's alive. No, I can't believe it. Now, just because Thomas didn't believe it, did that mean it wasn't true? Thomas's belief didn't determine truth or not. Because there's a lot of people who don't believe. But just because they don't believe doesn't mean it's not true. It was true for a whole week before Thomas believed it. For eight days later, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas was with them. I would have loved to have seen how they got him there. I mean, did they, did they dogpile on him and wrestle him down and drag him there, kicking and screaming? I don't know. But somehow, Thomas got there. And he was with them. And again, this is a week later, Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, peace to you. One, one side note, again, for those that are scientifically minded, I, I'm not going to elaborate on this, but we see Jesus in his resurrected body passing in and out of rooms. I mean, like, he's there, and then he's gone, and he shows up again. The doors are locked, they're shut, and all of a sudden, boom, Jesus is there. It's like, well, how'd he get there? Now, I don't understand all that's going on with the resurrected body, but I do know this. Uh, I I enjoy, you know, when I I catch things or talks, I love to listen to scientific talks and things. And and if you listen and and start to study about something called quantum tunneling, that's what your pastor does in his spare time. I'm a real nerd. I spend time (laughs) studying quantum tunneling. I study theoretical physics. But uh, without going into the details of it, uh, theoretical physicists can, uh, through their mathematical calculations, understand that it is possible, in a theoretical way, for uh, particles and for people to pass through solid objects. Now, again, I'll, I won't explain it to you because I don't understand it, <laughs> but this is what theoretical physicists say. Now, again, quantum tunneling, you look it up, you be a nerd, and, uh, and you research it, but what I'm saying is we read these things in the Bible and we go, oh, I don't think that could be true. And then we see that science comes alongside and bears out the truth of the things that the Bible says. Even though the Bible doesn't take time to explain it, just takes it as it is. Jesus came, doors being shut, stood in the midst and said, peace to you. I'd be like, ah, you know, how'd you get here? And look, look what he says. He said to Tom, so he, he comes and he shows up, peace to you. And then he looks right at Thomas and Thomas is like, I'm sure Thomas must have been jaw, you know, dropping. And, and, and then he opens his mouth. He says, reach your fingers or your finger here. 
and look at my hands. That's how kids look at stuff, right, with their hands. So can, I, can I see that? And they've got to touch it. You know, he says, reach and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Now, how did Jesus know that Thomas had even said that? Jesus wasn't there physically when Thomas said that. And so the, I think one of the greatest mind-blowing things to Thomas is he knows what I say. He knows what I think. When I, so even though he's not there physically, he hears. That's one of the greatest lessons they're learning is that you might not see him, but he sees you and he hears you. And he knew exactly what Thomas was looking for. And he showed up and he said, Thomas, experience me for yourself. Here I am. And I don't think Thomas actually had to do it. Do you? Because right away he says, Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. I don't think Thomas really needed the proof he was asking for. I think just seeing Jesus was enough. And as soon as he saw, he said, my Lord and my God. He calls Jesus his God. And Jesus didn't say, oh, no, Thomas, don't worship me. I'm not God. Don't worship me. You can't do that. He doesn't say a word about it. He says, Thomas, don't be unbelieving, but believing. And I think, again, what a great message for for this Sunday morning to somebody sitting here. Don't be unbelieving. Be believing. Because the interesting thing about Thomas is church history tells us Thomas went on to plant churches in India. When you take a person who starts out as a skeptic, I, I made some notes. Let me give you a few names. Some of these you may know. Some of them may not be as familiar. How many of you have heard of C.S. Lewis? C.S. Lewis was an Oxford educator. Now, I make note of that because in our day and age, uh, people will tell you you're a, an intellectual moron if you believe in the Bible. That only losers and the uneducated believe in God. Have you ever been made to feel uh, intellectually stupid by somebody who put themselves above you and that, oh, you believe in those myths, that, that religion of the Bible? <laughs> Nobody with a brain believes that stuff. Well, I believe an Oxford educator would have a brain, don't you? I think so. Lewis was an Oxford educator, an accomplished writer who became an atheist as a young man, influenced by arguments made by Christian thinkers. Lewis Lewis came into Christianity kicking and screaming. The reasoning for his beliefs have been articulated in many books, the most popular of which is titled Mere Christianity. How about Josh McDowell? Set out to disprove the Christian faith as a college student only to arrive after many months of study at the conclusion that Jesus Christ must have been who he claimed to be. Francis S. Collins, M.D., Ph.D. Those letters mean smarts, I think. Is a physician geneticist famous for his landmark discoveries of disease genes and his leadership of the Human Genome Project. An atheist at the completion of graduate school, Collins later became a believer as a result of philosophical and scientific considerations. His conversion and reasons for belief are detailed in his very readable book, The Language of God, A Scientist Presents Evidence for Belief. One more, Dr. Ralph Munkaster was an atheist with a skeptical nature and sharp critical thinking skills. While doing research to dispute the Bible, Dr. Munkaster was surprised to find evidence that supports the Bible's claims. As a result, he now helps those with skeptical minds as they seek the evidence of God. 
I love to see someone who's a skeptic. When they get saved, when the light finally shines into their heart, they become radical evangelists. And Thomas, for every skeptic out there, Thomas's unbelief and his skepticism and the change in his life is the greatest proof anybody, any skeptic could ever need. If Thomas can believe, if Thomas who said, I can't believe unless I actually experience Christ personally, he said, I won't believe. And then this is the guy that plants churches in India. I think something happened. I think he really did experience Jesus Christ. And I think he really became uh, an evangelist. So for any skeptic, I, I think Thomas is, is proof positive of, of the claims that Jesus has made and the, the reality of the scriptures we read. But not all of us get to have that experience, right? So what do we do who sit here and we haven't experienced Jesus personally like that? We haven't put our fingers into his side and, uh, and, and touched the nail prints in his hands. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. See, we have witness after witness after witness that is telling you and begging you to believe. And you don't have to see for yourself. You see, we're called to walk by faith, not by sight. So you can, based on the testimony of archaeology, based on the testimony of prophecy, based on the testimony of eyewitness uh, people that have seen Jesus Christ, I mean, you can believe. Even though you say, I just can't believe. Yes, you can. Believing is a choice. And blessed are you if you do. You know what blessed means? It just means more than happy. It means to be whole. It means to have no need. Blessed are you if you, having not seen. This is what Peter would say in, in his letter uh, in First Peter. He would say, whom, Jesus, whom you love, having not seen him. We, that's so hard, isn't it, to love someone you haven't seen? We've got his letter, but we've never seen him. And that's a challenge. That's walking by faith. I love him. I haven't seen him, but, but I believe. And truly, verse 30, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. John didn't set out to, to write everything. To every, as a matter of fact, if, Jesus, if every act of Jesus was recorded, there wasn't enough books to hold all the information. So every gospel writer just chose certain things. That's why I say maybe Jesus did breathe on Thomas and say, now it's your turn, receive the Holy Spirit. I don't know. Maybe it happened it wasn't recorded. There's a lot of stuff that happened that wasn't recorded. But what was recorded, this is what John says, verse 31. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So a couple of things uh, by way of, of closing. Um, he doesn't say these things are written so you may have knowledge and by having knowledge you can have life. Knowledge is good, but knowledge isn't everything. It's a difference between knowledge and belief. People suffer not from lack of knowledge. Believe me, in the age we live in, I mean, there are sermons galore available. You can go on the internet and listen to sermons all day, all night. I mean, there's millions of them out there. You have Bibles in six rooms in your house. There's no, how many of you know, there's no lack of knowledge. There's no lack of information, right? But what there is a lack of is belief. 
I was talking uh, with a, a fella from the congregation on the way into the soup kitchen, and we were just talking about belief. Belief means confidence. It means putting your trust in something. If you really believe it, it changes you. And oftentimes, and I think it's, it's a, as a general principle, you can say you believe in something, but the proof of what you really believe in, I think, lies in two very important places that are very revealing. Now, again, I'm just giving a generalization, but I think your checkbook and your calendar are the two things that really show what you believe. Because the Bible says where your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be. Your, tre- your treasure dictates your heart. Your heart is a follower. Your heart is fickle. Your heart will follow your treasure. Those things you treasure, your money, where you put it is where your heart will be. So you look at your checkbook and say, where does my money go? I had it yesterday. Where is it today? But look at your purchases. Look at your spending habits. And be willing to examine yourself. Because then you'll say, well, I believe in the Lord. I believe in Jesus. You know, I believe. Well, the question is, does your, does your checkbook support that belief? If not, then you have to say, this is where it gets hard. You have to look in the mirror and say, Maybe I don't believe that God is, is in charge, that God owns everything. And that all I give to him is just a portion back of what he's given to me. Maybe I believe that I am a self-made man and I deserve to spend on things I want to spend on. Maybe I believe that I've accomplished all these great things and I don't believe in the grace of God. Your checkbook will reveal where your heart is in that matter. And your calendar is the other thing. That will reveal it. Look at your calendar. Look where you spend your time, the things you spend your time doing, the things you spend your time on, and your time pursuing. That's where your heart is. That's your God. And there's no life in that. Because clearly, John writes, it's that through, not through knowledge or information, but it's through believing that you will have life in his name. And that's what, that's what people so desperately need. It's not another church experience. Not a rock concert with dim lights and smoke machines. That doesn't give life. That gives entertainment. Not, you know, and I'm not against relevant sermons. Uh, you know, maybe I'll preach one someday. Uh, but not, you know, this is not... We try, to, we try to substitute so much for the very thing that people need. All these other things we try to do to help people pretend they have life, right? A chicken with his head cut off can run around, you know, looking like it has life. But it's sporadic and erratic and it's not life. It's just activity. But when you believe, and that belief changes your your life, it's through that that Jesus breathes on you and says, receive the Holy Spirit. And that's when you have life. And that life, look, everything that comes from that, that's the source. That's where it comes from. From Jesus Christ himself. There's no other source. There's no other fount, so to speak. Are you with me? So I'm going to invite Nick. Are you coming? Where's Nick? Is Nick coming up? Come on up, Nick. And the the guys are going to come up as well. Um. Can we sing Spirit of the Living God, Fall Afresh on Me? Because, you know, maybe for some of you, 
uh, it's just a fresh filling of the Spirit of God in your life. I mean, I'm so desperate. We, we watch the news. How many of you watch the news and get angry? And we point our fingers at what's going on around the world, and we say, oh, how can this world we live in? And we sit on the couch eating our food and sipping our drinks and screaming at the television and listening to the talk show, the talking heads on the talk shows, and we just, they just make us angry. And meanwhile, Jesus said, I'm sending you. Why are you still sitting there? I've got work for you to do. The answer for darkness is not to yell at it, not to scream at the darkness for being dark. It's to go and be the light. And I'm desperate for revival. Desperate to see people live these truths out in their life. Aren't you? So we're going to sing, Nick's going to lead us in Spirit of the Living God, Fall Afresh on Me. And if you just need, you know, if, if Thomas spoke to you, if the disciples receiving the Holy Spirit spoke to you, say, you know, God, I'm ready to lay down my sin. I'm ready to lay down my, my doubt and just come to you. Lord, I don't know what to expect. I don't know how this works out. But I hear what this long-winded pastor is saying, and I just want more. I just want more. Then I'm going to invite you to come down into the, to the front, and, uh, and we'll pray for you to receive the Holy Spirit maybe for you fresh, maybe for you the first time, and receive the forgiveness of sins that are promised to you. Amen?